0: Turn in your Bibles or in the bulletin to John, 1 John 3. The sermon today will be on 19-24, through 24, but we will begin reading in verse 16. You may notice in your bulletin, too, there's a translation that I did, which is not meant to be a uh, substitute or authoritative anyway, but just for reference uh, later in the, the sermon. But we'll read from the ESV. But before we do that, let's... Uh, Let's pray. Father, you have told us in your word in a proverb that whoever gives thought to your word will discover good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. So will you help us today by your spirit as we give thought to your word. Let us make discoveries of good inside it. And may we savor your goodness, and thereby put the fullness of our trust in you. In the name of Jesus we ask, amen. Stand for the reading of God's word. First John 3, we'll read from 16 through to the end of the chapter. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brother's. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. by the Spirit whom he has given us. Amen. Praise God for his inerrant and inspired word. You may be seated. I ask you to put yourself in the Apostle Peter's shoes. We all know the story of Peter who Uh, at one point said, I'm going to follow you to death. I'll die with you, Jesus. And then, of course, Jesus told him that he would deny him. And indeed, he did deny Jesus three times. So you put yourselves in his shoes. Some days later, Peter was in his boat and sees Jesus on the shore. And He comes to the, the realization that that's Jesus. The very person that he denied. You can imagine how that would feel. What do you do in that moment? I think I'd want to shuffle behind some of the other fishermen to hide from Jesus. Or whenever I get to shore, just stand at a distance from Jesus and kind of not be noticed. But Peter, what does he do? He strips down to his skivvies and he dives in and, and swims a beeline for Jesus. The question our text is posing today is the same as the rest of the book, is how do you know? How do you know that you are in Christ, that you are a believer in Christ? How can you be confident of your standing with him? But this passage adds a little bit of a a twist, a different view on the question, is how do you know when your conscience is afflicted? How do you know your position with Jesus when you're in that place where your conscience is afflicted? We see this beginning in verse 19 and then 20. What, what do we do when our conscience is tender, when our heart accuses us? Uh, verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So John here, even using the word reassure reminds us that we, there are times when our hearts need reassurance before God. Uh, I, I really blew it this time. I failed him again. And I know he has to hate me for sure now. We've all felt that. We go through times of doubt, and I believe some people are predisposed dispositionally toward a more of a persisting feeling of doubt and some people are more naturally confident. But we've all felt that feeling of, of our heart accusing us. What do we do? How are we supposed to reassure our hearts before God? To to stand on the beach confident before Jesus, even though we failed him. Also, he goes on in verse 20, uses a bit of a stronger language for the phenomenon. He says, our heart condemns us. When our heart condemns us. Literally, the word here, condemns, it means to know against. To know against. So, it's, it's like our heart is whispering in our ear... I've got dirt on you, buddy. I know what you did. I, I know something against you. What are we supposed to do when we feel that way? Well, he says in verse 19, by this, by this we shall know we are of the truth and we assure our heart before him. By this, he says. By what exactly? Um, and this is a good time to say this is, Actually, well, probably the most difficult passage to interpret these two verses in First in John. So it would be easier for me to just plow ahead, telling you my view. But actually, there's there's two broader views, and I'll try to tell you briefly both. Um, so, by what do we reassure our hearts? Some think by this looks backward in the text toward the the previous verse in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in truth. By this, we know we are of the truth, by our love for one another. Now you can see, if you look at my my translation there, you can see I take the, the, a different view that the interpretation or it, by this is referring forward in the text. And I, if you want the gritty details about why, I'll tell you later, but... Um, my translation says, and by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him, whereinsoever our heart condemns us, that God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. So that's how we know. By this, by the fact that God is greater than our heart, we're reassured. So some some interpreters understand John to be issuing a warning here and others understand him to be issuing a comfort. So if it's a warning, instead, the idea is if your own heart condemns you when you sin, if you see your own sinfulness. How much more God will he see your sinfulness who is greater than your heart and he knows everything? And this view holds a lot of weight in my mind because it's very historic. It was Calvin's view. This is a historic understanding of this text. And whether or not that's what John is saying, it's true biblically. We should be aware, without question, there's no tricking God. We're barely able to trick ourselves. He knows everything. So whichever way we land on the, the interpretive question, the Bible makes these same claims about God and his greatness and his omniscience in the context of warning and judgment as well as in comfort. And we should take that to heart, particularly if we're outside of Christ, if we're not believers in Christ, he knows if we're putting on a mask. There, The, the Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. As strong as that view is, I'm inclined toward the the comfort interpretation here because I was better able to make sense of the language in my own head, for one. And I'm also convinced that John is primarily addressing people in 1 John he thinks are Christians that are inside of of Christ. So when he says, God is greater than our hearts, he includes himself, the Apostle John, in the mix. So when, when he's feeling... That he needs reassurance before God. This is this is somewhere he can turn. So, assuming this this understanding going forward, um, in verse twenty. I'll ask again the question: Why is it reassuring to the believing heart that God is greater than our hearts and that He knows everything? Well, first, this, that God is greater than our hearts; that our heart is not our ultimate judge. I think it was John Stott who pointed out that there's sort of three parties here in this scenario. There's the the defendant, which is us, the prosecutor, which is our heart, and the judge, who is God. And and in what courtroom is the prosecutor greater than the judge? God is greater than our hearts. Paul says this about his conscience um, in in a case of actually... Clear conscience, but the same principle applies in First Corinthians 4.4. 4. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not vindicate me. It is the Lord who judges me. So the point being, our conscience, as powerful as it is, as wonderful a gift as it is from God, it does not have the power to issue a final verdict about us and our ultimate destination or our relationship with God. However, it may accuse us. Also, our conscience may not always be entirely reliable as fallen human beings. You see that in Paul's comment about his conscience that I just read from 1 Corinthians. Just just because his conscience is clear, that doesn't make it right, he says. Ultimately, God's going to judge. But I feel pretty good about about this. Uh, In our passage, the flip side is also true. Just because our conscience accuses us doesn't necessarily mean it's right. This is a great comfort to us. A few points about the conscience that, just briefly, and I'll give you references, but I won't read them. You can look them up later. But our consciences may be seared. That is, we don't feel what we ought to feel. Paul says that in 1 Timothy 4.2. Also, our consciences, on the flip side, may be hypersensitive we may feel conflicted over things that are are actually not sinful. So, uh, again, Paul talks about that in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8. Also in Romans 2.15, we learn that our conscience may excuse us when we are in fact guilty. And then the flip side of that, our conscience may condemn us when we are in fact innocent. See, see something of that in Colossians two, sixteen. So our conscience, our heart's accusations are not always entirely reliable. And all of these things that our conscience can can play against us are things that also play into the devil's hand. These are things he yet loves to use against us because he, like our condemning heart, is called an accuser. He's also a prosecutor in God's courtroom. He says, look at what you did. God will never accept you. But John reminds us in chapter 4, verse 4 of this same book, that just as God is greater than our hearts, he says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, who is the devil. So God is greater than both prosecutors, our heart and the devil. So God is greater than our heart. This is reassuring for our hearts before God when we are in that position of our, of, of having a, a plagued conscience because God gets the last word about us. Our heart does not. He's greater than our heart. Uh, one commentator put it this way. He said, we do not look into our hearts to see if we feel secure and then use this as evidence for our security. If our conscience condemns God overrides the verdict. That's a, that's a great comfort. And here's, here's the verdict that God gives. For those who are in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Also, he says God knows everything. That's meant to be a comfort as well. Why is that reassuring? Well, in short, our heart is an ignoramus. It it may accurately perceive our our shortcomings, or it may not, but it, it can also miss so much. Contrary to popular belief, our heart is not a pure, untainted guide for life. If we could only learn to listen to our heart, no, that would be terrible. This is why the life of the mind must inform the life of the heart. Why our hearts must be sanctified and, and be and how we feel must be subordinated to what we know to be true. Notice in this this letter of assurance that John he does not direct them to how they feel deep down inside, to their hearts for comfort. The great verb in John, in 1 John, is we have known. We have known, we have known is the word over and over again. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. Even better by far than our minds informing our hearts is the mind of God informing our hearts. So he knows everything. Think about Peter. Peter, uh, the denier. That's probably what his heart was calling him, right? A denier, sitting on his boat, not catching any fish. His heart's telling him, I can't believe you did that. And How embarrassing, you arrogant fool that you said you would go and die with him and then you just, you denied him. Then kind of walking side by side with Jesus on the beach, he he may be wondering, he's going to let you go, Peter. You know you deserve it. I'm speaking hypothetically of course I don't know what Peter thought but you can read in the narrative of John 21 and you get a sense how he might have been feeling how, how he dramatically responded to Jesus by leaping into the water and swimming to him and the question that's in the background of the story of uh in First John or in John 121 John 21 is the restoration of Peter is is Jesus going to restore Peter that's the question So if Peter's heart is the prosecution, then Jesus plays the part of the defense. Peter's on the stand, and Jesus probes, and he asks questions that that he knows the answer to. Simon, son of John, do you love me? What's what's Peter's appeal? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. A second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Simon, son of John, do you love me? John says, That Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So his appeal is the same as it is here in this text, that God knows everything. And that reassures his heart. His appeal is not his actions or the motivations of his heart. Well, I tried my hardest, but I I failed. No, he instead, he appeals to the omniscience of God. Jesus, you know everything. The knowledge of Jesus is vastly superior to the accusations that are in his own heart. A.T. Robertson said, and I stole much of this from him, he said, God knoweth all things. Just so, Peter replied to Jesus in spite of his denials. God's omniscience is linked with his love and sympathy. God knows every secret in our hearts. This difficult passage, he says, strikes at the very center of Christian truth. So the afflicted conscience can turn, can turn toward God, can run toward God, can, if you're Peter, swim toward God. Because God is greater than our hearts and because God knows everything. Everything. Now, what what of the unafflicted conscience? In verse 21, we we read about that. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We used Peter before. We could use Paul and, and Job as test cases here. Um, We've already seen Paul. He had a clear conscience in 1 Corinthians 4.4. And he says very similar things in a number of places. Uh, For example, 2 Corinthians 1.12. He says, and this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in relation to you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God, and and not in worldly wisdom, but in the grace of God. He has a clear conscience about how he's been acting in the world. Job, in chapter 27, verse 6 of Job, he says, My righteousness I hold fast, and I will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. This is an unafflicted conscience, a heart that's not accusing him, despite all of the pressure to the contrary. I think sometimes we think that that groveling in the dirt, maybe eating the gravel, is the only way to, to be before God. The only re- reasonable posture is, is one of self-flagellation. That may be for the unbeliever, but for all of you who are born of God, th- this idea is a lie from our accusing heart and the devil. That's not the posture we're to have before God. He wants us. John wants us. God wants us to experience what He's talking about: confidence before the living God. So, if you're one of those people, and there are many who, who struggle with this, who can't imagine having an assured heart before God, I, I would urge you, to, to practically, to turn to chapter 18 of the Westminster Confession. It's on assurance. You can. Look it up now, we'll read a little bit of it. In the hymnal, it's page 858, chapter 18 of the Westminster Confession, and I'd urge you to go and study it, to look up the verse references. I'll give you a copy if you want. I'll sit down with you and go line by line. It's such a valuable, uh, resource on this question of assurance. Here's a sampling. Page 858, chapter 18, section 1 says a little bit of the way down through section one. Such as are those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So you see what he's saying there is, Confident assurance is actually attainable, which for some of us feels like maybe it's not. It says, in this life, be certainly assured that they are of the state of grace. What a a hope that that's possible. And then in the second section, this certainly is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. In other words, we're not just hoping against hope here. This is concrete. But an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made in the testimony of adoption. And he, they continue on there. You understand what they're saying here is that assurance is ultimately the result of believing God, of having faith in God, in believing what He says about you. Just consider what He says about you in the, in the book of 1 John. He says in the first chapter, we ought not to sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He goes on to say, he is the propitiation for our sins. Then he says in chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Do you believe what God says about you in his promises in in, in, in Scripture? That's the foundation of assurance. So do you have faith? That's the question. Even a small faith, a weak faith, this infallible assurance of faith founded upon divine truth and prom- uh, promises that the confession is talking about is, is what I would call objective assurance. It happened. Jesus died for me. No matter how I feel about it, it's objective. It happened. In other words, God made promises. He enacted those promises in the work of Jesus. He applied them to us who are his because he wanted to. And try as you might, doubt as you might, you can't shake this. You can't undo what he's done for you. that That's the objective assurance. But I think what John is talking about mostly in this passage is a subjective assurance or a, a felt assurance. Do I feel reassured before the face of God. And if I'm feeling shaky, how do I reassure my heart before him? If I do have a shaky, shaky conscience, what does that mean about my relationship with God and where does that assurance come from? And notice the result here in the text of a clear conscience. 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Paul and Job both exude this extraordinary confidence. Their hearts, they're settled before God and man. And where does that confidence come from? First, I think think we have to restate that it comes from a knowledge that they're objectively in fellowship with God by grace. That's the foundation. To be clear, our works things we do have no place in our salvation, no function at all, only grace. And that's the, that's the foundation of assurance. But also, John's point in this passage and in much of the book is that the things that we do and believe have a role to play in our felt assurance as evidence of whether we are really abiding in Jesus or not. Notice the the connection between assurance and confidence and fellowship with God on the one hand and obedience on the other here in the text in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because, why is this the case? Because we keep his commandments and we do the things that please him. may seem counterintuitive because we rest not on our works but in Jesus however if we're hanging on to Jesus with one hand and clutching on to sin with another of course we're going to feel conflicted in our conscience and we can in one sense stop the mouth of our accusing heart in the same way that Daniel stopped the mouths of his accusers by by giving them nothing to go on Of course, we're not talking about perfection. Uh, we we're going to struggle with sin. It's going to be a fight to the end. It's interesting to me that Paul, he can say in one place in Romans 7, reflecting on the reality of redeemed saints who struggle with sin, he can say, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. In another place, he can say, my conscience is clear, but that does not vindicate me. The Lord judges me. In other words, he's, he's saying, I'm not the ultimate judge of my actions, but so far as I can tell, I've been faithful and obedient in the matter at hand. He has a clear conscience. And even as Christians, as people who have the Lord as our Father, sin can affect our relationship with our Father. It can place a distance between us and God. We know this as, as parents, that this can happen, or as children. Can also happen between us and God as Christians. What I notice as a pastor, it's very interesting, is that serious sin is almost always accompanied with, with a distancing of the person from me and from the church, from the Word of God. It's always a separation there. To, to, to push myself away. Well, why is that? Well, one, one reason is because we are like Adam and Eve. That when we sin. When our consciences are inflamed, we don't want to be confronted with God's Word. We want to hide. We want to cover ourselves. Catch the the two year old back in the back bedroom with some snacks that he's not supposed to have, right? Like he he knows and he hides. It's never happened before. But when our conscience is clear, he says we have confidence before God. We want to be in his presence. And I think this is the connection with prayer in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do the things that please him. This isn't like divine vending machine and if we're living right then god gives us what we want anytime we ask but there's a sense that even as children of the father our our sins become a barrier to communion with him for example james 4 3 says when you pray for things you don't get them because you want them for the wrong reason for your own pleasure or first peter 3 7 reminds us tells us Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that's a difficult verse to interpret. I'm not going to do it now, but in some sense, the way we treat our wives can impact our relationship with God, the vertical dimension. So John Stott explained it this way. He said, Obedience is the indispensable condition, but not the meritorious cause of answered prayer. In other words, we need to be obedient, but it's not the grounds for for the answers to prayer. We don't earn God's favor in prayer through our obedience, but the absence of obedience may indeed be a barrier to his paternal favor, and it may in fact be that his silence on certain things is in fact a chastisement. It's worthy of note as well that John returns to this theme of prayer in a very similar way toward the end of the book. In 1 John 5, 13 through 15, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What a privilege that is alone that when we pray, God hears. And he says in 15, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him, which is uh, essentially, I think of it as a way of saying, I've placed this box of prayer right in front of God's feet and he knows that it's there. we look back to verse 21, he says again, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do the things that please him. And what are the things that please him? What are his commandments? And he describes that for us in verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he gave the commandment to us. so The first element of this commandment here, the most critical, crucial element to obey is, he says, to believe in the name of Jesus Christ, his son. And no doubt he has in mind what Jesus said in John chapter 6. Verses 26 through 29, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me because you saw signs, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is right after he breaks the bread and feeds the 5,000 and they're all following him because they want more bread. He says, you're following me, not for me, but for bread. But he tells them, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So this this might not be the first thing we think of if we're thinking, How do you reassure your heart before God? What commandments do we follow to reassure our hearts before God? Is it something... Extravagant, like be more like Mother Teresa, or is it keep all the Ten Commandments perfectly? No, Paul, John says believe in Jesus. Have faith in Jesus. I know I fail regularly to keep the Ten Commandments. I even know that, that my faith in Jesus is not always that strong, but I also know this. I believe in the name of Jesus. Faith in Jesus, as Paul tells us, is a gift from God, no matter how weak. And that in it, we lay aside our own attempts to earn salvation by measuring up, by by just pulling up your bootstraps and trying to do better. And we rest in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And then, obedience to Jesus and love for the brethren come alongside as, as confirming witnesses. Uh, Here's the way Calvin put it. I think it was a helpful image to me. He said, then love, and I think love is the focus of this passage, but also we could add obedience, um, is an accessory or an inferior aid a prop to our faith, not a foundation on which it rests. Love and obedience prop up our faith. Uh, Zoe has been learning to do headstands. She stands on her head with her feet straight up like pencil shape, and of course all of the weight rests on her head, but she has two hands as props to keep her up. She'll fall down if she removes them. They're the prop, but they're not the foundation. That's, That's what Calvin's saying about faith, that obedience and love are the props, but the foundation rests on faith. These three things, they're all present in this text. Faith and love and obedience form a stable tripod on which the Christian life stands. And without any one of them, we fall to the ground. In verse 24, he summarizes, he reminds us that these commandments are the evidence that we really are abiding in God and he in us, which is really what we want to know, what we want to find out. Whether our heart is in an accusing posture or whether it's at peace, we want to know, do I have fellowship with God? And verse 24, and the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. Abides in God, and God in him. And he adds to that another another thing that we know, by way of transition to the next passage, he says, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given. We'll talk about that more next week as he gets into the Spirit, but I, I'll leave, say this for now, that that the reason this threefold tripod of faith, love, and obedience can be an evidence of our abiding in God is that none of this comes from us. If we have these things, it's because it came from the Holy Spirit. So I just want to close by just addressing those who may have an accusing heart which all of us do, again, from time to time or more frequently. Consider this, first of all, that if you know that you believe, but you are shaky and lack confidence before God, first of all, might there be a reason for that? Perhaps you are clutching to sinful patterns that are causing a relational breach between you and God, and you'd rather not give it up, so it's easier to sort of hide behind your fellow fishermen than face Jesus. And seek restoration. Peter himself reminds us of this in another great um, assurance text. He challenges us to live out our faith. He says, make in second Peter 1 five through eight, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For these, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So that's the first thing, if you have an afflicted conscience, Consider why that may be. There may be sin that needs to be dealt with. Secondly, know this, that your accusing heart does not have the final word on you. If there's sin to confess, confess it. And as he says in chapter 1, verse 9, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And no matter what your heart says after that, no matter how it continues to accuse you, it's not the final judge. God is. He is greater than your heart. And he knows everything. So, I'll close with this. That all over the Psalms, we see this put into action. We, we see the heart-torn sinner, not hiding from God, but running to him in faith and repentance, and seeking forgiveness from him. Just like Peter, who, who swam a beeline for Jesus. A good example is Psalm 38. The psalm opens. This, this, this is a, the, the the accusing heart just put into to words. Exactly, he says, "O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin." For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. That's a strong verb. That. That's the accusing heart. But notice how the psalm ends. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. Praise God. Amen.